We're going to continue the series in Proverbs, and today we'll be focused, actually for the next two weeks, we'll be looking at friendship. If you've ever read Proverbs before, you would have noticed that friendship actually plays a pretty significant role in the book of Proverbs, and there are many Proverbs that speak of friendship. Um, imagine a kindergartner, right? someone very, very young, and a question that so often comes up with a very young child is they will go up to another child and they'll ask with that sheepish, longing look, will you be my friend? And they're waiting for that answer, so concerned, so hoping and hopeful, shyly. I think that's the heart of all children, but if we're honest with ourselves, it's all of our hearts. We're all looking for true friendship. And it's something that we're always on this quest for, to find someone that we are going to have kindred spirit with, to have this lifelong connection with. And the question is, can this occur? And how does this happen? This week, we'll look at the impediments to true friendship, and next week, the um, components and cost of it. It's really a challenge, and I, I found this on after giving this message at 9 a.m., is that it was intended for to be one message, but it would have been about two hours long. So it would have been a really great, you know, let's take two hours to unpack this together. because, And so I had to break this up into two parts. And one of the great challenges of giving a message like this in two parts is you're left with here are the problems. And then you walk away going, oh, I just have those problems. And then the hope is, well, here's what it could look like. That's next week to come. So it works in dramas as you're sort of watching one episode to the next and you're left with the cliffhanger. I don't want to do that to you as much, but sad to say it's going to be sort of the nature of this message is to talk more about the, the negative side of why we have such trouble finding friendship, true friendship. And men and women are very interestingly different on this topic. The, the, the components of what friendship looks like sometimes differs based even on gender. So um, we'll first look at this framework in, from the perceptive, uh, perception of impediments. You know, after sin entered into the world, there was a curse that was given to Adam and Adam's curse was that when they labored, there would be the burden of labor, and nothing would ever come easily for him. But that burden of labor, the, the destructive power and nature of sin, isn't something that just simply impacted work. Uh, the Lord told him out of the ground, anything that Adam dealt with was going to come with thorns and thistles, sweat of your face. And so you see this played out not just in work, but as well in all things in humanity. And in this instance, friendship, we actually see that come to be as well. That is to say that this concept of friendship is not going to happen so readily and easily. And if you've lived long enough, you know that to be true. It's hard making friends. It's hard making true friends. And so we're gonna look at five impediments to friendship, true friendship, we'll look at these thorns and thistles and see what they look like. 
The first comes from Proverbs chapter 17, verse 9. And the first impediment is unforgiveness. Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. Here, the Proverbs writer refers to someone who cannot let a conflict pass, a wound go. It often feels as though that wound is being constantly opened again and again. And notice it's by a trusted and close friend. That's the assumption. We're not talking about an acquaintance or a stranger. This is someone you have placed your hope in, your trust in. You've considered this person someone dear to you. And in any relationship, you live long enough with them and you'll experience disappointment, perhaps even betrayal. The, the question is, how can we experience that from close friends? Again, you can, might experience that from a coworker or a boss, but really a close friend? Well, in this relationship, as long as you have two sinners, you have yourself and you have the other person, there's going to be disappointment. There's going to be conflict. And within that relationship, there has to be forgiveness and a pursuit of reconciliation. This is ongoing. It might happen every once in a while or pretty regularly, but get ready for that conflict in some way to bring about a temporary rupture perhaps, or maybe much more, a significant one. If there is no forgiveness in relationship, there's no opportunity for depth of relationship. Look at the opposite of this heart. It says, the Proverbs writer says, whoever covers an offense seeks love. Proverbs 10, 12 puts it this way, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. There has to be in a relationship, on the one hand, the willingness to cover an offense. Because again, if you have two sinners and they spend any length of time together, there's going to be conflict and hurt and disappointment. And if you're going to literally point out every single aspect of something that bothers you about the person, you're probably not gonna be close friends for too long. So there has to be some sense of forbearance. Um, I'm not talking necessarily about sin issues, but maybe personality quirks, or just they don't necessarily respond in the same way to your emails in terms of timing that you would in yours. I had a friend who, um, when I would call him and uh, ask if he could call me back, he never would. And it, you know, initially I would just think of it as a personality quirk. Then I started getting really frustrated with him and say, he's no friend. He was just that type of person actually. He never called anyone back, no matter how many, and this is you know, pre-email text days. And uh, he just didn't do that. So I had to make a choice. Was I going to remain friends with him and understand him where he's at? Or was I going to cover it over? Now you might say, don't you think you should actually have a conversation? The answer is yes, you should. Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 18. Part of relationship is actually being willing to risk the rejection of that person by talking to the person one-on-one. -on -one. We'll talk about the danger of bringing another person in before you're ready to do this. But when someone offends you, hurts you, sins against you, it is 
your responsibility and theirs to actually confront one another to, out of love and mercy and grace. But we're supposed to do that. So you have two choices when it comes to relationship. You can either talk to the person directly one-on-one -on -one, and work it out, seek reconciliation, forgive one another, and get ready to do that probably multiple times in a relationship. That's just the nature of two sinners coming together. Or you have to be willing to cover over offense in love. That is to say, to bear the burden yourself sometimes. That if it is a, well, this person never comes back to me, I either need to talk to them one-on-one -on -one or be willing to say, I'm willing to forgive. But the temptation is to bring someone else into the picture, to say, you know what? So-and-so does this. And we'll talk about what that looks like, but that usually leads to a rupture that so often separates close friends. Now, here's the problem is that if you look at chapter 17, verse 9 again, whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. Why does a person repeat matters? When, there's a, when someone has hurt you and you don't necessarily confront the person, you don't cover it up, what happens is that it's still residing in your heart and slowly bitterness begins to form. And our instinct is to, maybe we might bring it up, but not out of a willingness to work it through, but maybe it's out of sarcasm or jest. Something, it, it just keeps on coming up and we do so in a way in which we want that person to feel the jabs of our, of our pain and we're willing to do it in small little ways and slowly but surely, you should not be surprised that your relationship with the person is, is a, just, there's a wedge being driven into it. That's what Proverbs is saying is that if you don't confront it, if you don't deal with it, it will separate you. Get ready for your relationship to be broken. So forgiveness means regularly, ongoing, working through with the person, um, being challenged with the truth of the matter, but still being gracious. And Proverbs is telling us that we have to be willing to do this. Otherwise, what it really ultimately reveals is a heart of unforgiveness. The second impediment is flattery. Proverbs 27.6a says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. This proverb has a lot of irony in it because you would expect wounds to be coming from an enemy and kisses coming from a friend. But it really is a terrible thing when the opposite occurs. Now, kissing is an incredibly intimate act. Uh, you kiss someone out of intimacy because you feel safe with the person. There's a vulnerability to that person. There's a trust to that person. And so when we see that these kisses are coming, there's a fullness to it. This person, you're just entrusting this person fully, but behind it is not vulnerability and intimacy, but wounds. Meaning that on the physical side, it looks like you care for this person. There's intimacy, but actually in your heart, there's hatred, disdain. And when you experience that, that type of flattery, so someone who loves to talk about you, 
very highly in person, but then behind your back, they're talking about you another way. That's an enemy. And flattery sort of has that. The opposite of that is that a friend who is faithful will sometimes wound you, will wound your self-esteem, your ego, will actually prick your self-centeredness. And you will find that that person is actually a cherished friend. For example, say you have a, a Christian friend and you yourself are in Christ. So both of you believe in Christ, but this friend is unwilling to call you out when you sin because they, they don't want you to think you're judgmental. Um, they, they don't want to lose you as a friend, so they don't ever want to say anything that is critical in any way. The question is, is that person a true friend? Not really. Not according to what we see in Scripture. Um, I'm afraid we are so overreactive when it comes to pointing out sins in other people that we never point out sins in other people. We're so concerned about looking judgmental, worried about losing relationship that we never speak into another person's life. And if that's the case, you have to really ask the question, is this person a friend? Faithful are the wounds of a friend. If you go out and you're drinking with another friend who's a Christian, is this person willing to say, hey, you know what? I think you're drinking a little bit too much. Most of us aren't willing to do that because, and they're slowly getting tipsy. Are we willing to say, I think that's too much? Most of us aren't willing to do it because we don't want to look like the bad guy. We don't want to look critical, judgmental. And we're so concerned about looking critical and judgmental that we never say, hey, you know what? I haven't seen you at church for about a month and are you okay? And if they say, well, it's, it's, it's been busy and I've been working or, you know, my kids, their schedule's so chaotic. So, and you can see, we all see it. A lot of people see the, just the, the dryness of heart, coldness of spirit towards the Lord. And no one is willing to say, hey, are you sure you're okay? Because I'm really concerned for your heart, for the Lord, ultimately. A true friend will have that discussion. Now, that's not an easy discussion, but faithful are the wounds of a friend. So there's two parts to it. The one is the receiver of those wounds. Am I willing to actually accept wounds from friends? Because I know ultimately they do care for me. Now, sometimes they might not come to me with, maybe, they're li- maybe they are a little bit judgmental. Maybe they are a little bit critical but I see behind them the spirit of it. And so I'm willing to receive that. Or is it, no, no one can speak into my life in that way. And then also, as the one who actually is caring for that person, am I willing to do what it takes to rescue this person? Now, I can't ultimately rescue them, but to to warn them. Because if they were physically in danger, if they were taking a selfie and they're at the edge of the Grand Canyon, they're walking backward, Um, There's a cliff, and you said, hey, watch out. Don't walk that way. Uh, Most of us would say that's a good friend. It would be an evil friend if they didn't care, if they never said anything, because they felt bad. They didn't want to yell too hard. You know, if someone is about to run into the middle of a busy intersection without looking, 
and I said nothing, I think all of us would say, that's a bad friend. A true friend would even be willing to grab the person, seize them, and pull them out if they needed to, even if it hurt them in the process. That's a true friend. If we're willing to do that just um, physically, how much more when they can lose their soul if we say nothing? Is that a true friend? I don't think so. And yet, so often we see it that way. Flattery, that desire to only say what a person wants to hear, is not friendship at all. That's actually an enemy, according to Proverbs 27.6. Next is gossip, chapter 16, verse 28. A dishonest man spreads strife, and a whisperer separates close friends. Now, this proverb is very similar to chapter 17, verse 9, but it has one word that distinguishes it apart from the other proverb, is the word whisperer. Whisper connotes secret, meaning there's two people who are talking about another person. They're whispering it. And this same word is used to, uh, in regards to the Israelites who were grumbling against God. And they did so not out in the open, but often in their tents, in secret, in private. And so this is sort of the warning to say, you can actually be close friends with someone but maybe slowly something about that person is irking you and irritating you. And so rather than confronting them, you actually go to another friend and say, hey, you know what? Don't you think so-and-so is like this, says this, do this? I think if we're honest with ourselves, all of us do this. Because there's too much fear to actually confront the person and it's safer to try to build coalitions to try to get someone to be on your side so that we can critique this person without ever actually confronting the person. If it's a personality quirk, then love covers over offenses. And I don't, I, I don't, maybe I don't need to even bring that up. It's more about me than it is about that person. But if it's someone has hurt me and I feel that pain, rather than going to person X, I need to go and confront the person. If I'm not willing to, if I'm never willing to do that, then I should not be talking to somebody else about it. But that's our instinct is to start whispering towards everybody. Don't you think they're like this? And again, this is so commonplace amongst all of us. Gossip is a grumbling and grumbling exponentially spreads. It's insidious, it's cowardly, it's secretive because it's always behind someone's back. It has this flattery aspect to it because we want to speak well of the person. You know why we want to speak well of the person, but yet speak ill of the person behind their back is because we still want to look good in front of the person. Again, this is something that is pervasive amongst all of us. I would imagine that all of us are, have been guilty of this before. And it, it is, it's a sad breaker of relationships. This doesn't happen between acquaintances. According to uh, Proverbs 16, 28, this happens between close friends. People that you actually say, I'm this person's dear to me, and yet we have spoken ill of them behind someone else. Lastly, um, it's this, uh, I'm sorry, not second to lastly, there's fellow fools as an impediment. Chapter 13, verse 20. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Proverbs here reminds us that the people we call friends in our lives 
can and sometimes really brings about harm to us. And you might not even realize they're bringing about harm. Sometimes it's the harm to your soul and it's causing you to actually turn away from the Lord because you've become hardened. And so it leads ultimately to your destruction. Proverbs 28, 7 says, the one who keeps the law is a son with understanding, but a companion of gluttons shames his father. Proverbs 29, 3, he who loves wisdom makes his father glad, but a companion of prostitutes squanders his wealth. And Proverbs 22, 24, make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man. What's common between each of these Proverbs is that you have a person who wants to feel pleasure and to feel just happy with himself, to be satisfied with what he wants to do in the moment. So he becomes a glutton, someone who just simply does whatever it feels good for himself. And uh, the next person is the companion of prostitutes, someone who sexually just wants to do whatever they want to do. And then lastly, the angry, angry person who is um, just angry all the time. Proverbs says, do not be that person's friend. All of these people are fools. The prodigal son story is sort of this picture of Proverbs. When he goes out and spends all of his money, you know, he had all this, these resources. And while he had those resources, everybody wanted to be his friend until he no longer had the resources and they all left him. That's what it means to be the companion of fools, is that you're a fool yourself. Whenever we seek out friends because of how they make us feel and what we can get from them, it always leads to foolishness, to folly. And those friends will never be there for you in the end. They will always last until you run out of whatever you have, whether it's popularity, whether it's resources, whether it's your health. Who is going to be by your side if you get into a car accident and are paralyzed and can no longer play basketball? Go to the park, uh, go shopping, do whatever, and now needs you to help care for them. Who will be by your side? I tell you, will not be those people who, who are around you simply because you're cool. You're the in-person. You make a difference to people in the way, and you allow them to enjoy life for the moment. Those people will abandon you when it's hard or difficult for you. And yet, that's exactly how so often, from the youngest of ages, we determine friendship. We look around, seek common interest, or those who will make us feel good about ourselves, um, who are popular, and we think, as long as I connect to them, I'll feel really happy with my life. That's being a fool. And we surround ourselves with those fellow fools, and it never, ever lasts. I remember when I went to college, after um, you know, uh, high school years of essentially having no friends, really, and I wanted to change that so badly. So I made some connections with ultimately foolish friends. And because of that, it led to some real hardship and a lot of foolish decisions, a lot of a waste of 
my first few years of college, and I could share that with you, well, you know, one-on-one with you one day, but the, the, the reality is that those people I spent time with, it caused destruction and chaos in ways that I wish I could take back, but God still used that. I know some of you, especially teenagers, you, you want to belong, but not just teenagers, all of us, we want to belong. Be careful that you don't let the drive of wanting to belong actually cause you to make foolish decisions by bringing around you people who do not help you to actually grow and to find joy and ultimately delight. The people who want to belong and who are always trying to fit in, those are the people who struggle the most in this world. It's only our identity in Christ and our hope in him that frees you to actually be okay with being alone. If you are okay with being friendless, you'll probably have many friends. But it takes that type of secure identity, not in yourself, but in Christ. When you have that, you're not, you're not pulled and sucked into this longing desire to want to fit into different groups, which leads to this last impediment, insularity. Here, I'm not going to look at Proverbs, but we'll look at James chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Insularity and exclusivity, it stifles friendship. It's not just the people whom you're rejecting and not allowing to enter into your sphere of friendship. It's actually going to stifle your current close friendships because that heart that says, these are the people I'm close to, and it's based solely on common interest. You know, we all have children of the same age or life stage um, or ethnicity, socioeconomic class, something that we say, okay, here's why we're friends. And here's why we're close friends, because we all play chess together. We all play ping pong together. We all go hiking together. We all have children who are two years old. You know, I mean, so that grouping of people, it, it's very temporary. It lasts very fleetingly. And I think if you examine and consider whom you live life together, go through the difficulties of life together, in, in fact, experience even real hardship together. And, and a true test is, have you experienced conflict together? Have you spurred one another on towards beyond yourself and to consider others, the more you open your heart to that, the more you see the, just sort of the elasticity and the depth of friendship. But when we close our hearts to others and we're just insular, it really keeps us from understanding the depth of friendship. I want to say a few things about insularity. First, it's far too naive and simple to critique those we deem as close friends as a clique. And I, I think that when we enter into any grouping of people, whether it's school, work, church, um, any type of social structure, as soon as you enter, you're going to look around and see groupings. And you're going to say, oh, that's a clique over there, that's a clique over there, that's a clique over there. And the instinct is to start criticizing them all. Well, that group, that, you know, that workplace is very clicky. That church is very clicky, and that's our instinct. The reason is because, not because we're really trying to understand friendship, 
but rather because we're not part of it. I really like how author Seth Lewis says this about cliques. He says, cliques are bad. That is, until we're in them. But the cliques we're in aren't cliques at all because cliques are one of those odd realities that can only be seen and recognized from the outside. From the inside, they look completely different. From the inside, all we can see is camaraderie, companionship, support, and fun jokes that no one else understands. I mean, isn't that true? Is that we're quick to judge cliques until we're actually inside one. And when we're inside one and we get judged as a clique, you start thinking within the group, well, we're not a clique, we just really like each other. What's wrong with that? And those who are judgmental about it are no longer judgmental about it once they enter into the clique. Now they, it's all about close friends. It's not a clique at all. Sort of the nature of things. Now, here's what I find interesting is that um, people who have Christ as the sort of the grid upon how they view relationship, they don't see cliques because they're very open to anyone. And their instinct is not to say, oh, this is a clicky group. It's how can I make an impact in the grouping of people that I have around me? They're not exclusive at all. And so they're, they don't see it on the basis of cliques because they're not trying to join one. They're not even trying to break one. They're just simply who they are in Christ and they're ready to build relationship wherever they are. But those who are longing for certain types of friendship always see cliques. It's their identity, it's the way they view the world is it's all about how do I get into that group and if I don't get in, then I feel excluded, so therefore everyone's clicky and we become judgmental rather than saying, I'm going to make a difference because I don't need actually everyone. I just, I'm satisfied with who I am and I'm gonna make an impact just simply by my, who I am in Christ. That person is free, free from any type of social pressure and is able to make the impact of proclaiming Christ in all different contexts. You see, we have to get beyond this idea of viewing groupings and so it's not to say we shouldn't have close friendships there is a place for it and it's impossible in our world to be close friends with every single person that we encounter but may i say that it's quite possible that we have limited our idea of friendship by determining either close friends are but a few and no one's able to enter into that sphere or that we actually see everybody as a close friend there is there is a place to recognize that the Lord is the center of our relationships. And as he is, he breaks us free from the power of wanting to belong because we already know we belong. We already know that we have a new identity and we don't need everybody, but yet we want to be a blessing to everybody. There's a big difference between that person who says, I need people in my life to actually feel fulfilled versus I don't need people in my life. I am fulfilled. That's why I'm going to make an impact in the lives of people. And that's why I want people in my life. They don't determine who I am, but I need people to live life together in community. And both of those things happen. We're going to talk a lot more about this positive aspect of friendship next week. So I, I, like I said, this should be a two-hour message because then you can really get a sense of, oh, okay, this is where we're driving towards. 
but I'm leaving you hanging a little bit because it's, all right, so tell me, I know what the problems are. How do I have something good? That's next week. Um, but here's the thing. Even after next week, when I give you, here's what it can look like. You might say, yeah, but that, that still looks really hard. You know, that, I, I don't know if any of my relationships are like that. And the answer is, you know, actually, you can try hard to have really great relationships and friendships and close friendships and true friendships, and you actually can't do it by your own willpower and strength. It's just not possible. You know why? Because we're still two sinners. And if it's based on my effort, my willpower, my personality, my experiences, and your willpower, personal experiences, it's just not, we're not going to be able to do it. I'll fail you time and time again. Try to, I hope, I want all of you to be my close friends. But get ready for disappointment. <laughs> get ready because sometimes I'm going to fail you. And you're going to fail me. And so how do we make it work? The answer is Proverbs 18.24b. There is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. This is the key to all relationship. Marriage, but yes, friendship. It's, I have to know that ultimately there's one friend who will never let me go, who will always be there for me, who is committed to me, who will never disappoint me. And it is Christ himself. If you look at the gospels, you see how much of a, a picture of Jesus as friend is. You know, there are many different ways Jesus relates to us. He's our savior. He's our Lord. He's our king. But there's this other sort of title that he has, Jesus, friend of sinners. You ever, you've seen, you've heard that, right? You've seen that. I mean, he is the one who, while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. Not after we became his friend, he died for us. It's while we were, according to Romans 5.10, we were once God's enemies. So while you were his enemy, while you hated him, while you wanted nothing to do with him, while you cursed him out with your mouth, he is your friend. He loved you with an everlasting love. He gave his life for you in that place. And so we have to always recognize that he is the friend who sticks closer than anyone else to you. More than a wife or a husband, more than a parent, more than a brother or sister. He will never let you go. James 4.4, 4, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. I think if we're honest with ourselves, we all want to be friends with the world. We love the world and its power. We love the world's possessions. We love the world's reputation. We want the world to be our friend. And if you want to be friends with the world, then you have God as your enemy. If God is your enemy, then what hope is there for us except for the fact that Jesus is a friend of sinners? He is the one that we depend on. And that's what every relationship, every friendship rests on, is that I know I can depend on Christ as my ultimate, truest, never-failing, always-there friend. Because that is true, I can go into any circumstance and any situation and realize I don't need people to be my close friend to satisfy me. I already have that. And I find this to be the case. The children who are 
most wanting to be loved, what are they usually like? They're usually rowdy. They're usually like, they'll usually start hitting you and punching you and, you know, and then you just say, oh, get away from me. They throw tantrums because they want to be so loved that they think the way they get it is by doing, just by being the, the fullest of who they are. It just, just splatters all out and it actually drives people away. And as you get older, you see that. The people who are most challenged with people is the person who wants to be loved the most but doesn't have it. The believer of Christ has it because Jesus is their friend forever. And you never doubt that. And that then frees you to go and make new friends, to go and make close friends, to actually be disappointed with friends. If Jesus was betrayed with a kiss by a, a friend, shouldn't we realize then that if, if he can still love us in that way, even though he understood betrayal and abandonment from friends, it shows that he will never leave us. John 15, 15, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. My dear friends, know that he will never let you go. You want Jesus as your friend, and it unlocks for you not only true friendship with him, but true friendship with others. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we know the only means by which true friendship is possible with you and with others is through a great price. Friendship is not free for you. It was costly. Jesus, you gave your very life as you said in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. And is there any greater picture of what true friendship is than Jesus, you laying your life down for us so that while we were still enemies, that you would call us friends through your shed blood. That's the means by which we are able to actually love others. So God, I pray that you would, by your spirit, join us together, not because we have common interest in the things of this world, but because we have this, um, this unifying foundation of the blood of Christ that we've each been purchased. And it's what helps us to overcome personality quirks and differences. There are people in this room that we would never be friends with if it was solely based on personality or based on life stage or all sorts of different circumstances. But in Christ Jesus, Lord, you who are the great reconciler, who has broken the dividing wall, who unifies us, you are the one who makes us, um, you call us your friend and you allow us the gift of friendship. May we take that and just... Just enjoy and delight in you, O oh God. Thank you for your marvelous and wondrous love. And we ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.